coming to you from the Motor City. Hello, and welcome to Detroit's Daily Docket. On the podcast today, the doctors are discussing all things blunt force trauma. From contusions to lacerations to broken bones, you'll learn how we can distinguish between a simple fall and an intentional beating. As a bonus, the doctors will give you their opinions on sports-related head injuries. To close out the episode, learn about motor vehicle collisions and the kinds of injuries seen during autopsy. Welcome back to Detroit's Daily Docket. I want to thank all of you for coming back and listening to this podcast. And to start today's topic, we're going to be talking about blunt force trauma. And let's open up with what seems pretty obvious. Blunt force trauma refers to injuries that occur from contact with a blunt object. And a blunt object is one that does not have a sharp edge, or at least the sharp edge is not used to create the injury. Common examples include fists and feet that are used for punching and kicking in a fight. Weapons like a hammer or a board can be used in a beating. And even guns can be used to beat someone, which is also known as pistol whipping. The very ground that we're standing on can, in fact, reflect blunt force trauma when you fall and strike your body on the ground. Now, blunt force injuries that occur from these impacts can include abrasions or skin scrapes, contusions or bruises, lacerations or skin tears, and fractures. Dr. Labdi, can you start us off by describing what abrasions are? Yes. Abrasions are skin scrapes, where the superficial layer of the skin, known as the epidermis, gets scraped off by friction or contact with a roughened surface. Think of the scrapes you got on your knees as a kid from inevitably falling down while playing outside in the summer. Abrasions are superficial injuries that occur only on the skin and not internally on any organs or structures. They can hurt and they can become infected if not washed and properly managed, but they don't cause death in and of themselves. Abrasions occur at a point of contact with a blunt object or surface, especially over the bony parts of the body, and sometimes their appearance tells us what the blunt object or surface was. If you are riding a bike and are thrown off the bike, you may slide across the pavement. This sliding causes large areas of what is called brush burn abrasion, and the abrasion looks like multiple parallel lines from the rough cement surface or gravel. If you simply fall onto pavement, any skin that contacts the pavement can have an abrasion. If you strike your face on the ground, the abrasion will be on the bony protuberant parts of your face, for example, your brow, your nose, and your cheekbone, because these stick the farthest out on your face and thus will contact the ground first. Simply hold a hand flat up to one side of your face. Your hand is touching your brow and cheekbone. And this is an important distinction from being punched in the face as fists can strike any part such as the eye or mouth and not just the bony protuberant parts. Abrasions can be pandered and take on a shape that tells us what kind of blunt object caused them. Being beaten by hammers results in circular and semicircular abrasions that are each consistently the same diameter, usually around one inch. Being beaten by a wrench or being pistol whip leaves patterned abrasions that are parts of the tool or weapon being imprinted on the skin. A seatbelt also leaves a patterned abrasion in a car accident. If you are the driver, the abrasion is diagonal starting at your left shoulder and ending on your chest. If you're the passenger, the abrasion is diagonal starting on your right shoulder. And lap belts create horizontal abrasions across your abdomen. 
Abrasions can look fresh, meaning moist, red, and weeping or seeping, for about 24 hours. Your body then starts to heal the injury by creating a scab over it. The length of time it takes to completely heal an abrasion varies from person to person and from injury to injury. There is no test or method to accurately date an abrasion, and most abrasions, unless it is extensive and a deep brush burn abrasion, usually heal without any scarring. Now, Dr. Reyes, will you tell us a little something about contusions? Sure. Contusions are bruises caused by impacts to the skin that crushes and ruptures the blood vessels in the skin and underlying soft tissue and causes the blood to seep into the skin and surrounding soft tissues. Contusions can hurt or be painless, and they can occur on the skin or internally. When beatings result in internal bruising and bleeding, they can result in death. Contusions occur at the point of contact with a blunt object, but they can also occur on some parts of the body that are not associated with an impact. The best example of this is periorbital contusion, or black eyes. Black eyes can occur as a result of direct blows from a beating and can occur as a result of a fall or a motor vehicle collision in which there is fracturing of the front part of the skull. The tissue around your eyes is very thin and very loose, so bleeding from nearby skull fractures can seep into the periorbital soft tissue and cause black eyes. Looking at the other external injuries to the face, whether they're on prominent areas or all over, and noting any internal injuries, including skull fractures, allows us to determine how the black eyes occurred. Contusions can be patterned and take on an appearance that tells what kind of blunt object caused them, much like abrasions. A variant of this is called pattern contusion from being struck with a cylindrical object, such as a maglite flashlight or a walking stick. When a long cylindrical object strikes the skin, instead of producing one long linear bruise, it produces a linear bruise on both sides of the object as the blow pushes the blood in the underlying injury to either side of the object. Another variant is the pattern contusion from being bitten. Bite marks have an oval shape and they are composed of curvilinear abrasions or contusions that are caused by teeth. And while we can swab the bite mark for DNA analysis against possible suspects, the forensic science behind comparing the bite mark to the dental surveys of possible suspects has largely been debunked. Some people bruise more easily than others. Certain medications such as aspirin thin the blood and make people bruise more easily to minor injuries. It also makes the bruise much bigger than expected based on the inciting injury. The elderly and children have thinner and looser skin than adults and tend to bruise more easily. Indeed, the forearms and hands of most elderly people have a multitude of small bruises of varying ages with no memory of any injury that caused them. These bruises are known as senile purpura to distinguish them from bruises caused by known trauma.
Fresh contusions are blue, red, purple in color, and they can take hours to fully develop in size and color. Your body starts to heal bruises by breaking down the seeped blood in the skin and soft tissue and turns the bruise orange, yellow, green, brown in color. There is no test or method to accurately date a contusion. A big deal has been made about microscopic dating of bruises, meaning you take sections of the injury and look at it under the microscope. While it seems easy enough, there is no established criteria for dating bruises because every person heals at a different rate than others. And even in the same person, two bruises can heal at different rates. Most contusions heal without scarring, though some really big or deep bruises can leave a hard lump of scar tissue underneath the skin. Now let's talk about lacerations. Lacerations are skin tears caused by impacts to the skin that crush and tear the skin. Lacerations can occur on the skin and internally on organs. They hurt and frequently require stitches, and they can become infected if not washed and properly managed, and they can, although usually don't, cause death in and of themselves. When beatings result in internal lacerations and bleeding, they can result in death. Lacerations occur at the point of contact with a blunt object. They have some characteristic features that help identify them as skin tears from such an object. The actual split in the skin can be any shape, although most are vaguely linear. The edge of the tear are abraded, and that is where the object contacted the skin and crushed it. And strands of tissue bridge the edges of the skin split, known as tissue bridging. These are important features to remember. Since most lacerations are vaguely linear, they frequently get, at least initially, mistaken for stab wounds. Stab wounds are created by a sharp-edged object that cuts the skin and therefore will have clean edges without any marginal abrasion and lack any tissue strands bridging the wound edges. Lacerations, like abrasions and contusions, can be patterned and tell us what kind of object caused them. Sometimes it's the shape of the actual split in the skin that clues us into the weapon, such as the semicircular or circular lacerations caused by a hammer. Sometimes it's the marginal abrasion that clues us into the weapon, such as a very thin marginal abrasion indicating a very slender object, such as a rod, or a very wide and irregular abrasion collar for a broad, larger object, such as a board. When lacerations occur on organs, the tissue is just crushed and torn. Your liver is a solid organ that, well, resembles the liver you can buy at a butcher's counter. And when it is lacerated and crushed, it actually more resembles ground beef. And as you can imagine, the effect internal lacerations can have on these organs and the attempts to repair the damage can be devastating. Avulsions are a type of laceration where the impact sustained was at an oblique angle to the skin surface, resulting in the skin being ripped from the underlying tissues and creating a flap of skin with significant underlying blood loss and damage. Fresh lacerations are open wounds that can bleed profusely and hurt and require some medical attention to stop the bleeding. This is especially important for scalp lacerations as the scalp is very vascular and the wounds bleed profusely. Even though they may only involve the skin and thus seem innocent or innocuous, if the bleeding is not controlled, they can cause or contribute to death through the blood loss. They have a much greater risk of infection compared to abrasions and contusions and can result in loss of limb or life if not treated. 
there's no test or method to accurately date a laceration like the other forms of blunt injuries. Every person heals lacerations at a different rate than the person next to them, and even in the same person, two lacerations can heal at different rates. Lacerations can heal without scarring, or they can leave a scar, depending on the nature of the wound and if proper medical attention was sought. Okay, now let's talk about fractures. So the study of the bones and fractures are a whole specialty of medicine called orthopedics that we cannot cover in one podcast episode. So we will just briefly talk about a few features of skull and rib fractures that are important to forensics. One of the most important features of fractures is that unlike all other forms of blunt force trauma that we have discussed, there is criteria for the microscopic dating of fractures. These dating systems rely on changes present or not present under the microscope to estimate the age of the fracture. So it is based on subjective findings, and the estimate is in intervals of days to weeks, not hours. But at least bone is more predictable than skin in its healing process. Skull fractures are obviously serious injuries that can cause or contribute to death. They can be linear, circular, if caused by a round object, or stellate-shaped, which is fractures radiating from a central spot like spokes on a bicycle tire. They can be something medically referred to as simple, which is just a linear fracture with the bones aligned and stable, complex, which is a fracture that shifts or becomes displaced, comminuted, which is bones broken in more than one place like an eggshell, compound, which is broken bone breaking through the overlying skin, and depressed, which is broken bone that is pushed into the skull cavity. Simple fractures can be serious injuries, and all the other kinds of fractures have a greater risk of complications in death. Fractures occur at the point of an impact and can radiate from that point through the other contiguous bones, including the base of the skull. One would think that the base would be the most structurally sound part, but that's not the case with the base of your skull. Although it is the thickest part of your skull, it is composed of many different bones and is actually the weakest part of the skull. Any impact to the side of the head can and frequently do radiate to the base of the skull and then extend from one side to the other, which is known as a hinge fracture. Impacts to the front or back of the head can also radiate to the base of the skull and even across it. When the hinge fracture is through the mid-base of the skull, it frequently results in blood collecting underneath the skin behind the ears, resulting in hematomas known as battle's sign. When the fractures extend through the front base of the skull, it frequently results in blood collecting underneath the periorbital skin, resulting in the black eyes we just talked about. Injuries to non-contiguous bones can occur with significant internal injuries and brain swelling. Where the bones in your skull are connected to each other is called cranial sutures. The sutures are needed for the brain growth and development into adulthood. 
Early in life, they are made of connective tissue that allows for flexibility of the bones for childbirth and subsequent brain growth. In adulthood, the bones fuse together and the sutures are merely the demarcations between the bones. In cases with significant internal head injuries, the increased pressure inside the head can separate the skull bones at these sutures. These are not fractures per se, but the bones of your skull are being pulled apart to make room for the increased pressure in your head. Rib fractures are a bit different from skull fractures in that they can be caused spontaneously, meaning without any trauma, from a direct impact to the chest or indirectly from squeezing of the chest. There are 12 ribs on both sides of your chest. They are connected to your spine in the back and the first 10 ribs are connected to your sternum in the front of your chest. The 11th and 12th ribs are called floating ribs because although they are connected to each other, they are not connected to your sternum. Together, they create a flexible bony cage for the chest. Now, there is a wide variety of conditions that can affect the bones and render them more easily broken. When that happens, these fractures are called spontaneous because oftentimes there is no memory of any injury that might have caused them. Diseases that can result in non-traumatic fractures include vitamin D deficiency or rickets, inherited diseases like osteogenesis imperfecta or brittle bone disease, osteoporosis, some cancers, in fact, originate in the bone while others can metastasize or spread to it. Infections, medications, diabetes, and lupus and other autoimmune disorders, just to name a few. When investigating these types of cases, you need, one, a clearly documented history of such a condition. Two, the autopsy needs to confirm that history. And three, no injuries or history of trauma to conclude that a fracture occurred spontaneously. And as you imagine, oftentimes these types of cases are not clear-cut. For instance, imagine an elderly person in a nursing home. They have multiple medical conditions, including cancers and osteoporosis and poor nutrition. And there's a history of frequent falls. This person develops pain in their side and is found to have a rib fracture but no memory of the fall or documentation of a recent fall. On external examination, you find the typical senile purpura and scattered bruises on the arms and legs, but no obvious injury to their chest. So is this a spontaneous fracture or a fracture from a fall that did not leave any bruise on the overlying skin? Rib fractures from a direct impact to the chest is easy to understand, but rib fractures can also occur indirectly from pressure placed on the chest. Picture in your mind the chest of a child or an infant being squeezed by an abuser or when the chest of an adult gets squeezed by a large heavy object. The ribs may fracture and they typically do so along the lateral sides of the chest. In another example, the act of CPR involves chest compressions where pressure is placed on the chest over the heart and the chest wall is compressed to attempt to get the circulation moving through the heart and through the rest of the body. Whether it's done by professionals or by the lay public, it is common to see rib fractures, especially in the elderly because their bones are much more brittle. Rib fractures from CPR are usually left-sided, but they can be on both sides. You can see them anteriorly or laterally, 
and even the sternum may be fractured. One needs documentation of resuscitative efforts along with the absence of other injuries in order to determine that rib fractures are from CPR alone. Now, I do want to go back to something that both Drs. Lavity and Dr. Reyes mentioned, and they said that both abrasions and contusions can heal at different rates even on the same individual. Now, this might confuse some people, but you just have to think about the different regions of your body. Those different regions have different uh, rates of blood supply to them. Skin on different parts of the body can be thicker or thinner. For example, skin on your palms and on your feet are thicker than other regions, so they may have more or less blood flow. So if you have more blood flow, a contusion, a laceration, and an abrasion can heal faster than areas that have less blood flow. All right, getting back to the main topic. Dr. Reyes? Thank you, Dr. Sung. That was a good point. Now let's talk about a famous fatal beating, Bob Crane. Robert, or Bob Crane, was an American actor, drummer, radio personality, and disc jockey, best known for starring in the 1970s CBS TV show Hogan's Heroes, a comedy set in a German prisoner of a war camp. He was 49 years old at the time of his death in 1978. Although unknown before his death, he had a history of many sexual adventures that he recorded and videotaped and had a friend that often accompanied him in these endeavors. He was found dead in his apartment in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he was performing in a theater by a co-star when he failed to show up to the theater. In keeping with our promise that we will not comment on the crime scene investigation or the 1992 murder trial in which his friend was acquitted, although we encourage anyone interested in such details to look up this case because it initially predated DNA testing and involves the loss of evidence that was possibly brain tissue. There were at least five blunt force impacts to Bob's head. There were two parallel horizontal lacerations behind the left ear with bruising on the ear itself. Another laceration uh, was noted on the left back of the head, bruising of the left lower lip, and bruising on the left temple and left upper eyelid. Internally in the head, there was a comminuted depressed fracture of the left temporal bone, which is behind the ear, with fractures radiating into the left parietal bone above the left ear and across the base of the skull. The topic of head injuries, including the different types of bleeding uh, that can occur over the brain, will be covered in a future episode in our next season. So here we will simply list all the other internal injuries. There were two types of bleeding on the brain, subdural and subarachnoid hemorrhages, and there were multiple bruises on the left side of the brain. While the weapon has never been identified, it had to be a large, heavy object that literally bashed his head in. The only defensive type injury was a very small abrasion on the back of his left ring finger. There was an electrical cord around his neck that was removed prior to autopsy, which showed a ligature mark circling the neck with no evidence of petechiae, facial congestion, or internal neck hemorrhages or fractures. 
and he was not strangled and the lack of defensive type injuries indicates that he was incapacitated by the trauma very quickly, likely with the first blow. A fascinating aspect of head injuries is that generally we can tell whether they were from being struck by an object or from a fall to the ground. We can do this by comparing the nature and location of external injuries to the internal injuries. In general, think of your brain as a ball and your skull as a hard case around the ball. If the ball in its case were struck while they're standing or sitting, the force is transmitted to both the case and the ball and they move together until the force is diminished. Any bruising on the ball will be at the point of impact and is known as coup, spelled as C-O-U-P, contusions. If the ball in its case were dropped to the ground, once the case hits the ground, it stops moving. However, the ball inside bounces off the ground and will strike its case on its side opposite of the fall. Any bruising on the brain will be at this point opposite to the impact to the ground and is known as contra-coup contusions. So when someone is found down on the ground after an altercation, we compare the location of any external injuries to the head with the location of any internal injuries and we can determine if they were from a blow or a fall. Now there are two popular misconceptions about head injuries from a fall. One is that it is unusual to sustain fatal injuries from a simple fall, say, from your standing height. While that is true in infants and children due to the elasticity and flexibility of their bones, an adult can most certainly fall from a standing height to the ground, strike their head, and sustain fatal head injuries in the form of skull fractures, epidural or subdural hemorrhages, and brain swelling. And it's not just the older adults who are known to have more brittle bones, bleed more easily, and due to the shrinkage of the brain in aging and dementias, have more space between their skulls and brain for bleeding to occur. These fatal injuries can occur from a fall in any adult, and there are plenty of cases that remind us to always be careful. Natasha Richardson, actress and wife of actor Liam Neeson, was 45 years old in 2009 when she fell while standing while receiving a skiing lesson and later died of her head injuries. And David Freeman, author of 100 Things to Do Before You Die that spawned a million bucket lists, was also 45 years old when he fell inside of his home and died from his head injuries. The second misconception is that you cannot die from just one punch to the face. As an example, say you are at a bar and get into a fight that results in punches getting thrown. With just one punch to the mouth, you fall to the ground and you never get back up. What happened? The actual punch can, but rarely by itself, results in injuries that can cause death. Deaths from a single blow to the eyes or the sides or back of the head are way more apt than ones to the mouth or chin to result in concussion and brain swelling and death. The problem in the bar fight scenario is that after getting punched, you fell to the ground and struck your head, and that is where the internal fatal injuries come from. Now, this really doesn't matter with regards to charges being filed in the death, because had you not gotten punched, you would not have fallen to the ground and hit your head and died. Finally, we thought we would discuss the manner of deaths from head injuries that are sustained in a variety of sports. 
There's a lot of discussion in the medical examiner community as to how to classify sports-related deaths. To generate an opinion, you have to consider the sport, the circumstances around how the injury occurred, and the nature of the actual injury. So following a similar format as we did with the manner of death episode, we will give you an example of a sport and then discuss our opinions. The common thing with all of these examples is that they will have blunt force trauma to the head, and those are from a direct impact to the head and not from a fall. So let's start with America's pastime, baseball. Imagine the batter comes up to the plate, pitcher throws the ball, the batter strikes the ball, and it flies through the air and hits another player in the head. So what's that scenario? What are your opinions about the manner of death? I think in this case it's an accident. Um, There's some risk to any sport, including baseball, and the risk is getting blunt force trauma from the uh, ball. So if the blunt force trauma resulting from the ball striking a player's head uh, results in death, I think this can be classified as an accident. Dr. Lavity, any differing opinion? No, I also favor accident for this. This is an unintentional injury or an injury that was not expected based on what was going on. You know, when you're playing baseball, you don't intend to hit someone with the actual ball. It just happened. So this really fits nicely into the accidental manner of death. Would you say the same thing if the batter, after striking the ball, is running and throws his bat and his his bat that strikes another person in the head? Yes. In this scenario, the bat was not used as a weapon. It was was just cast off and perhaps cast off without really paying attention because they're busy running bases. Mm -hmm. Uh, So any injuries that would come from that, to me, would still fit an accidental manner of death. I agree with Dr. Lavity. I would classify uh, the manner of death in that case as accident. The player threw his bat, but uh, it hit another player, so... Clearly, this is accidental manner of death. Now, a slight variation, sticking with baseball. This doesn't happen too often, but sometimes the pitcher actually hits the batter with the ball. So the batter rushes the pitcher, and a fight ensues. The teams clear the bench, and they start rushing at themselves, and punchers are thrown. And in this scenario, let's say one of the players catches a strike to the head. In this case, the manner of death would be homicide because the death of the player was caused by the action of the player who uh, hit him um, on the head. I also think in this scenario, in the context of a fight breaking out, if the bat or the ball was used as a weapon and purposely thrown at someone and results in injuries, in that instance, then the ball and bat are considered weapons and the manner of death would be homicide. How about golf? Uh, Golf ball? is struck by the club towards a hole and it strikes a participant in the head, similar to the baseball. Would you uh, classify this as an accident? Yes. Yes, I would do too. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to pick on Tiger Woods, but let's say he's having a bad day on the course and he gets frustrated, throws his club, and one of the onlookers gets struck in the head. Um, this is an accident? Yeah, I would still stick with accident. I don't think just in frustration is not enough to define intent that the club was used as a weapon. Okay, changing sports again to American football. Not soccer, but American football. 
Let's say in an attempt to gain possession of the football, several players collide while having their eyes on the ball, and one of the players is struck in the head by another's shoulders or elbow. How about the manner of death here? It's the actions of a person that results in the death of another. Well, I would classify the manner of death here as accident. This injury happened in a context of a sport that is risky, and this is why this is accident. I mean, we I think we're starting to get into the gray murky zone here uh, because football is a sport with intentional contact, uh, not necessarily to the head or resulting uh, in injuries that would result in death. But we are starting to tread in the I mean, that's the whole point is intentional contact. And I personally have problems with this as well as the other scenarios that we will be getting to. Um, But in this case, uh, I would say it is a known aspect of the sport. And if there was nothing in the actual contact that proved that it was directed toward a person or was purposeful, I would probably go with accident for this too. Now, during a tackle involving two players, one is struck in the head by the other's shoulder. Similar for manner? I think this is similar. Um, If there's no solid proof of purposeful trauma that has nothing to do with the sport, I would still call it as an accident. Okay, let's ratchet up the perceived violence a little and move on to hockey. There are multiple players in front of the net. One player is trying to score a goal and strikes another player in the head, unfortunately, with their stick. I would probably still go with accident um, for this one unless it was obvious that they raised the stick and it wasn't in the context of the game but to purposely strike someone but obviously one of the main things about hockey is all the fights that break out and all of the physical contact that goes on Uh, but in this scenario I think accident would be best. I agree unless it happened in the course of a fight I would still call it accident. Okay, so one player has possession of the puck, is skating down the ice, and another comes in, checks that player, and elbows him in the head. Him or her. I don't want to isolate women from hockey, but elbows the player in the head. Manner there? Um, Then this is homicide, because there is a purposeful act that caused death, and it had nothing to do with with how the sport was going. Now, Checking other players is a common occurrence in hockey. It's one of those known risks of playing the sport. Still, homicide? Well, I didn't know about that aspect of hockey. Um, and this is why uh, the manner of death is murky here. So, And in this case, I will rely on investigate, scene investigation and what happened around death. I think in hockey, anytime someone is getting elbowed in the head and it's going to result in injuries, the circumstances and the footage probably have to be reviewed very carefully because I think there's a very fine line when you're there in the heat of the moment between just elbowing to get someone out of your way while you're focused on trying to get the puck or get the puck away from someone as opposed to you're mad and you want to elbow someone in the head. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now... Once again, in hockey, unfortunately, fights are common. So a fight breaks out, they throw their gloves down, and they come and have at it. Uh, When a player gets elbowed in the head or struck by a hockey stick, what about there? Uh, Well, this is uh, homicide. Yes. 
pretty clear cut. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on to the squared circle of boxing. While during a round, obviously boxers get hit in the head. During the match, one player punches the other in the head, and unfortunately, the opponent collapses and dies. I would classify the manner of death here as accident. Any boxing match uh, would carry a high risk of brain injury resulting from an impact to the head. And although this is rare, uh, but this is one of the expected outcomes of trauma to the head, and that's why it is an accident. I struggle with this scenario greatly. The point of boxing is to intentionally inflict injuries to stop the other person, knock them out. And we in forensics really try to divorce intent from action in determining manner of death. But yet what we're doing here is saying because it's in the context of a known sport uh, in a boxing ring, punching someone in the head until they die is acceptable and is therefore accident. So my problem here is that what about street fights? What about, I mean, anyone who beats someone could theoretically say, well, we were boxing. Uh, and then where is the line drawn? Um, so I, I have a grave difficulties with this. And I'm very grateful that I, have not, I have, haven't had to actually confront a boxing death in all of my years here. Mm-hmm. The constraint might, might be that magic bell that they ring to make it okay during the round. But once that bell is rung, you should not be punching afterwards. Okay, moving on to arguably even more violent would be MMA fighting. Here, MMA, or mixed martial arts uh, matches, here we have two opponents, and for those who don't know, MMA is a very full-contact combat sport that uses both strikes and wrestling and kicking in a host of uh, disciplines, and it is in the context of incapacitating your opponent. So during a fight, a player is punched or kicked in the head by the other MMA fighter. What do you think here? I think putting it in a context of sport, I'm comfortable calling it accident. However, if the same act happens outside a game or sport, then that's a homicide. And I am again a conscious abstainer. My biggest problem with MMA is that a lot of these seem to be smaller leagues, more startup games. It seems to be a less organized sport than the other ones that we've talked about. So I think that we're reaching an even grayer zone of what is actually acceptable that occurs within the actual fight. And then how do we interpret just street fights? In this next segment of the podcast, we're going to be covering a very common category of death that is routinely investigated by medical examiner offices, and that is death due to motor vehicle collisions. For a very long time, these were called MVAs, or motor vehicle accidents. Now, I'm not saying that this is necessarily correct or incorrect, but there is movement in some of the medical fields to transition from using the term motor vehicle accidents to the phrase motor vehicle collisions. For medical examiners, one argument to support this is that the term accident refers to the manner of death, and not all deaths involving injuries from motor vehicles are, in fact, accidents. It's likely that we may interchange these two words, but the meaning is the same for this discussion. Now, circling back to investigations, these investigations can take several different forms depending on the jurisdictions 
and the details of each case. Most inclusive is what the majority of you think of when you hear forensic examination. We would perform an external and an internal examination, imaging studies, and toxicology. However, this is not always the case. Some jurisdictions may do an external examination combined with postmortem x-rays or CTs and toxicology. Another institution may do an external examination only. There are even cases where death certificates that are completed by a physician in the community are reviewed, let's say by the state health department, and due to some inconsistencies, the case is referred to the medical examiner to determine if the death certificate was properly and accurately completed. In those cases, the physical body is never actually examined at all by the medical examiner, but instead the medical records are gathered and reviewed. In saying all that, you might be thinking, why do MVC or motor vehicle collision victims need an autopsy? By what you mean an internal examination of the body. Let me give you a hypothetical. A person is driving a car, disregards a red light, broadsides another car in the intersection, and the driver is killed because of it. Uh, The driver was alive prior to colliding with the other vehicle, and the death appears to have resulted from the impact. So why does there need to be an autopsy? On the surface, with a lot of deaths, the cause of death may be clear from the circumstances surrounding the death or by an external examination of the body. But some things can be gained by performing the autopsy. For example... It's possible that the driver experienced a natural event, such as a heart attack or a stroke, that caused them to subsequently run the light and strike another vehicle. So an autopsy can help determine if the death was due to traumatic injuries or a heart attack. Autopsies are also done in these cases to detect any diseases or intoxicants that may have contributed to the death or the accident. It can aid in the identification of the decedent, collect toxicology specimens, clothing, and trace evidence from the body. And finally, some autopsies are performed to document all of these findings for criminal and civil cases. In the case that I gave you, the driver that caused the accident is dead and will not likely face any criminal charges. However, there might be a civil case or an insurance claim that will require knowing the cause of death and any contributing factors such as drugs or alcohol in the driver's system at the time of the accident. We determine the cause and manner of death in motor vehicle accident victims and not what caused the accident in the first place. We collect data such as toxicology that may help explain how the accident occurred, but factors such as reckless driving, distracted driving, inexperienced driving, falling asleep at the wheel speeding, inclement weather, and poorly marked construction zones are all common causes of collisions that cannot be supported or refuted by an autopsy. The determination of the cause of death for individuals that die from injuries sustained in a motor vehicle accident is straightforward and is usually listed as a phrase with two parts. First, If there is trauma on multiple parts of the body, the word multiple is used. Or if the injury is confined to one part, such as the head, then the word craniocerebral is used. Traumatic injuries occurring in a motor vehicle accident 
are blunt force in nature. So either blunt force injuries or just injuries are used, resulting in phrasing such as craniocerebral blunt force injuries or multiple injuries. The determination of the manner of death in motor vehicle accidents is not as uniform or straightforward, and a lot of this has to do with the jurisdiction and its laws and customs. The vast, vast majority of traffic fatalities are accidental in nature, meaning that when someone gets behind the wheel of a car, death is not the expected outcome of that activity. And certainly, passengers and pedestrians are not expecting to die when they get in a car or cross a street. Thus, the manner of death is accident. Remember that the manner of death in traffic fatalities has no bearing on whether criminal charges such as vehicular homicide will be charged. In some jurisdictions, leaving the scene of an accident, like in a hit-and-run scenario, changes the manner of death to homicide. Not all motor vehicle accidents are accidents, though. In instances where the investigation reveals that the vehicle was used as a weapon and the driver strikes another vehicle or pedestrian, then the manner of death is ruled homicide. In instances where the investigation reveals that the driver crashed their vehicle with the intent of killing themselves or the pedestrian walked out in front of the traffic with the intent of killing themselves, then the manner of death is ruled as suicide. And in those instances where a disease such as a heart attack resulted in death prior to the impact, the manner of death is ruled natural. And it's the death that resulted in the subsequent collision. You might be thinking, how can we determine if the death was natural if it immediately results in an accident? In an elderly driver who drives with known heart disease and has traumatic injuries, how can we tell which caused the death? Natural events behind the wheel of a vehicle are rare, despite the majority of drivers over the age of 50 having some type of underlying disease. And even though we think of heart attacks and seizures and pulmonary embolisms as being sudden deaths, in actuality, these individuals experience some sign or symptom that alarms them enough to the point of slowing down and steering off the road in order to avoid a serious collision. The subsequent impact that they do sustain typically has little damage to the vehicle and little injury to the body. And any injuries that are present are usually not life-threatening. In those even rare instances where a natural event is truly and immediately incapacitating prior to a crash moments later, the impact and injuries will be more severe. The injuries in these cases are serious and life-threatening, and even in the presence of documented disease, the circumstances will prevail and the manner of death will be ruled accident. Randy Savage is an example of a natural death that occurred while driving. Randy Savage was an American professional wrestler best known for his participation in the WWF, or World Wrestling Federation, and he was 58 years old at the time of his death in 2011. He was driving his Jeep Wrangler in Florida with his wife as a passenger when he became unresponsive, lost control, and crashed into a tree. His external injuries consisted of minor abrasions, bruises, and lacerations on his forehead and left arm, and no internal injuries at all. Autopsy also revealed an enlarged heart with 90% blockage of all three major coronary arteries, dilated heart chambers indicative of heart failure, 
and areas of scarring in the heart muscle, or heart attacks or myocardial infarcts. This degree of heart disease can result in sudden death from a fatal abnormal heart rhythm. His toxicology showed a very low level of hydrocodone and the presence of a small amount of alcohol and was not felt to have contributed to the death. His cause of death was ruled arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or coronary artery disease, and the manner of death was ruled natural, having had a fatal heart attack while driving that then caused him to crash his vehicle. Traffic fatalities are traditionally classified by the person killed, meaning driver versus passenger versus pedestrian, and by the type of impact the vehicle sustained, frontal, side, or rear. Injuries from MVCs are not truly speed-dependent. They can occur at speeds as low as 25 miles per hour, but they do increase in severity with increasing speed. Dr. Reyes, can you expand on the concept of the frontal impact to the vehicle, the types of findings that we see, and how those findings help us determine the position of the body in the vehicle? So frontal impacts are impacts to the front of the vehicle that cause the vehicle to push inward towards the occupants of the vehicle while they are propelled forward towards the impact. For both the driver and the front seat passenger, their knees may strike the instrument panel and result in abrasions, lacerations, dislocations, or fractures of the knees or hips. Their heads may strike the windshield, sun visors above the windshield, or the frame of the vehicle. These impacts result in abrasions and lacerations on the forehead and face, oftentimes running in a vertical direction, and common internal injuries include skull fractures, particularly of the base of the skull and bleeding on the brain. The driver's chest and abdomen may strike the steering wheel, while the passenger's torso may strike the dashboard. While the steering wheel can leave a telltale circular injury on the chest, both occupants can have the same internal injuries consisting of transverse fractures of the sternum, bilateral rib fractures, lacerations and bruises on the lungs, heart, liver, and transection of the thoracic aorta, also bleeding into the chest and abdominal cavities. Dale Earnhardt Sr. was an American professional race car driver widely regarded as one of the greatest NASCAR drivers of all times and was 49 at the time of death in 2001. He was racing in the Daytona 500 race and was in the last lap when his car struck two other cars then crashed into a retaining wall headfirst at a speed of around 160 miles per hour. Externally, he had an abrasion on his chin and a fractured left ankle. Internally, there was a ring fracture of the base of his skull and subarachnoid and subdural bleeding on the brain. He also had fractures of multiple left-sided ribs and of his sternum, but it's the head injuries that are of particular interest. A ring fracture is a fracture that circles around the foramen magnum and is typically caused by an impact to either the top of the head or to the bottom of the feet that is so severe that it drives the neck cervical spine up through the base of the skull and into the cranial cavity. This rare ring fracture in Mr. Earnhardt 
is of particular interest because he was the fourth NASCAR driver that died in crashes in an eight-month span that had this basilar fracture. And his death resulted in various safety improvements in the racing industry with no subsequent drivers dying from this type of head injury. What if the occupants are restrained in wearing their seatbelts? There is no doubt that wearing seatbelts save lives, but unfortunately deaths can still occur depending on the severity of the impact and the underlying age and health of the occupants. Seatbelts may leave external evidence of its usage or may not, and the absence of any external seatbelt injuries does not mean a belt was not used. If the driver was wearing their seatbelt, there may be linear abrasions corresponding to the belt that extend from their left shoulder diagonally across the torso to the right hip. If the passenger was wearing their seatbelt, there may be a linear abrasion extending from their right shoulder diagonally across the torso to their left hip. The internal injuries still occur in severe impacts even if the shoulder belt was used, and additional injuries from the belt can include fractures of the clavicles. In the driver and the passenger, the lap belt may result in a horizontal abrasion across the lower abdomen, and lap belts in severe impacts have resulted in additional injuries to the liver, the bowels, the mesentery, and the pelvis. Airbags are designed to deploy at low speeds in frontal impacts and are meant to be used in conjunction with seat and lap belts, and they undoubtedly save lives. But unlike these other restraints, airbags have been associated with severe injuries, particularly to children and those of short stature. In these groups, the head instead of the chest is at the level of airbag deployment, and typical injuries are neck fractures and dislocations and base of skull fractures. Side windows in vehicles are made of tempered glass, which is designed to break into small cubes that do not cause life-threatening injuries. If the driver's window is broken, small linear and L-shaped dicing cuts are typically seen on the left side of the body, and if the passenger's window was broken, these dicing cuts would be on the right side of the body. Now let's move away from frontal impacts to broadside collisions. Here, the impact is to the side of the vehicle. Now, a little counter to what you might think, side impacts can result in all of the same external and internal injuries as frontal impacts. However, it is believed that the injuries will be more severe on the left side of the body if the driver's side of the vehicle is hit, and more severe on the right side of the body if the passenger side of the vehicle was struck. Paul Walker was an American actor best known for his role in the Fast and Furious movie franchise, and he was 40 years old at the time of his death in 2013. He was the passenger in a Porsche Carrera GT that was speeding and lost control. The vehicle struck a tree and then a concrete light post on the driver's side, and then struck another tree on the passenger side of the vehicle before becoming engulfed in flames. Sometimes vehicles do explode and become engulfed in flames as a result of an impact. Walker's body was completely charred, meaning it was entirely covered with burns that extended through the skin to the underlying muscle, soft tissue, and bones. This type and degree of burns makes visual identification of the body and assessment of any external injuries difficult, if not impossible. These burns also create their own artifactual injuries, such as drawing the arms up into what is known as a pugilistic or boxer-in-the-ring pose, as well as fracture of the end of the long bones in your arms and legs, and sometimes even consumption of the hands and feet in the process. Walker's body had the common pugilistic pose and heat fractures of the right wrist. 
Autopsy also revealed many more internal fractures, including the left side of the jaw, left collarbone, left humerus or upper arm bone, spine at the level of the mid-back, multiple bilateral ribs, and the right side of the pelvis. Now, when a fire complicates a car crash, it adds an additional element of examination as we try to determine if the victim was alive at the time of the fire or had already died from the impact itself. And we will cover this in more depth at a later date, but the hallmark for determining if someone was alive at the start of a fire is looking for evidence of them having been breathing and finding soot lining their airways, as well as the presence of carbon monoxide in the blood from breathing in the smoke. Walker had both soot in his airways and carbon monoxide in his blood and was thus alive at the time of the fire. His cause of death was ruled the combined effects of traumatic and thermal injuries and the manner of death ruled accident. The driver was similarly completely charred and had extensive internal head and chest injuries. He did not have any soot in his airways and no carbon monoxide in his bloodstream, and thus he died instantly upon impact and before the start of the fire. Rear-end impacts are the least common type of fatal motor vehicle accidents because the trunk and rear compartment of the vehicle affords the front seat occupants more protection from injury. The sudden deceleration and whipping of the head forward, flexion, and backward extension from the impact typically results in neck injuries, ranging from neck fractures and dislocations to a closed head injury that consists of multiple small hemorrhages within the white matter of the brain. As a result of these whiplash injuries, rear impacts frequently result in chronic debilitation that requires therapy and increased medical care. To wrap things up around this discussion, let's turn to traffic fatalities with pedestrians. When a person is struck by a motor vehicle, their injuries depend on the type and speed of the vehicle and whether it was braking and what part of the vehicle strikes the pedestrian and the height of the pedestrian. Of those things, speed is considered to be the most important predictor of the severity of the injuries. That's not to say that fatal injuries are not seen at low speeds, meaning 20 mile per hour impacts. It's just that the injuries that occur more often at high speeds, and those can include spinal fractures, rupture of the thoracic aorta, and in fact, dismemberment of the body. I mentioned the height of the pedestrian. This is important because the pedestrian's height determines if the impact was above or below their center of gravity. When pedestrians are struck above their center of gravity, the impact slams them backwards onto the ground and then they're usually run over. When the pedestrian is struck below their center of gravity, the impact causes them to be thrown forward onto or, in fact, over the vehicle. The type of vehicle matters, too, because it also determines whether a pedestrian will be struck above or below the center of gravity. For example, full-size trucks have high front ends and tend to strike most pedestrians above the center of gravity and send them backwards onto the ground, while smaller trucks, SUVs, and cars strike the pedestrians below the center of gravity, and they're thrown forward and onto the vehicle. This is especially true if the vehicle is braking because the braking causes the front end of the vehicle to dip lower and closer to the ground. Children and those of shorter stature are struck above their center of gravity with most vehicles unless the vehicle is a smaller one or is braking hard. From the vehicle's perspective, 
the first part of it that is going to strike the pedestrian will be its bumper. This is the bumper injury and is usually on the legs and usually consists of fractures to the long bones. If the vehicle is braking, these injuries will be lower on the legs than the height of the vehicle's bumper would be if it was idling. These fractures can be at the same height on both legs if the pedestrian was simply standing at the time of the impact, or they can be at different heights on the legs if the pedestrian was moving, let's say they're walking or running at the time of impact. When these fractures are wedge-shaped, the apex of the wedge points in the direction of the force, and that can help determine if the pedestrian was struck from the front or from behind. Another injury that we typically see in pedestrians who are struck from behind are striae or stretch marks on both sides of the groin. And this is caused by an overextension of the body at the waist by the impact itself. Inevitably, regardless of all the factors considered in pedestrian fatalities, eventually the victim's head strikes either the car or the ground, resulting in fatal head and neck injuries. The victim's body also makes contact with the pavement and slides across the surface, resulting in large areas of abrasion on the body that is called brush burn abrasion. If the pedestrian is run over by a vehicle, there may be an imprint on the body that corresponds to the tire's tread. Although it is frequently absent over parts of the body that are clothed. When the wheels run over limbs, they are partially or completely amputated from the body, and when the wheels run over the neck, there may be decapitation. If the wheels run over the torso, there are usually massive internal crushing injuries to the involved organs. Pedestrians are the type of cases that require the most trace evidence collection and documentation as this evidence can be traced back to the vehicle in question. Samples of scalp hair and blood are taken to compare to hairs and blood on or under the vehicle. Samples of glass and paint fragments and grease are taken to compare to the vehicle. Tire tread imprints on the skin or clothing are preserved to compare to the vehicle's tires. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.